Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash, and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Who's Your Data. Between your Alexas and your Siri's and your Google Homes, voice data is the future. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Yared Alemu, founder and CEO of TQ Intelligence, that uses AI and voice recognition technology to identify and diagnose trauma in at-risk, underprivileged youth. We discuss the lack of funding, expertise, and data in public mental health services today, and how TQ Intelligence addresses these challenges and strives to provide quality mental health services to these communities. We also discuss what trauma really is and the challenge of collecting data and addressing its biases. Dr. Limu shares his experience as a black founder in the startup ecosystem, and we discuss the cognitive energy that minorities have to expend in order to exist in certain spaces. Lastly, we discuss the future and why you should pay attention to Walmart and Amazon when it comes to the future of mental health services. Huh? Walmart and Amazon? Okay, you gotta hear this. Let's get to the interview. Welcome, Dr. Alemu, and thanks for joining me here at Who's Your Data? I wanted to talk to you as the founder and CEO of TQ Intelligence, and I wanted to find out more about how your company uses AI and specifically voice recognition technology to enable therapists to help at-risk and underprivileged youth in the market. Happy to be here. It's a privilege. Thank you. So first of all, my first question that I ask everybody is, what is one thing that surprised you about yourself during the pandemic? How much I got used to and comfortable in um, working in isolation. I mean, I've always been kind of been an introvert, um, mm -hmm. but I've never thought that I can be in front of a screen and, and being content. Uh, so, so that's the... Uh, kind of the upside and the downside of um, is kind of a prolonged, you know, experiment uh, that, that I have data yes. to, you know, determine whether I should go back to work with my right, colleagues or just stay online. Yeah. I, I have to say that my little secret is that I don't mind it either. I'm yeah, happy yeah, being absolutely. at home. <laughs> you know, when I first found out and I heard about TQ intelligence, I was very fascinated by the concept of using AI methodologies in the mental health space. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about, first of all, um, you know, your background and how you became a tech entrepreneur and what led to the creation of TQ Intelligence. Uh, yeah, so I'm a psychologist by, by training. Um, uh, so I work with um, people with a variety of problems and ages. Um, my last job was running a large um, behavioral health community organization was 4,000 patients and about 150 providers. So what we do at TQ Intelligence currently is related to the problem I encounter in that setting. The company I was running was serving kids from low-income communities and 100% of the kids were receiving mental health services through the Medicaid system. So that system is very different than the private practice that most people know. Services are provided by people who are the least experienced. These are students that just graduated from their master's program in social work or, or mental health, and they don't have a license. The patients that tend to be uh, the most severe because of trauma, uh, these children are less and you have the providers that are the least experienced. And so, so it's very difficult to, to address quality in that setting. We know that there is an issue of quality, but I, I could not able to get data to be able to 
uh, identify and and work towards a solution. So it's a, a mental health is a low technology business, uh, and the public system like the Medicaid system are very limited in terms of a data infrastructure to collect outcome data and uh, make you know uh, improvements accordingly. So it's a it's a problem that I brought to uh, Georgia Tech um, after I left that job and and was able to come up with a solution as a direct response to that problem. Okay. And so when you say that it's a uh, low tech and that there's a quality problem in the industry, in my mind, what I'm thinking about is, first of all, the fact that um, I think according to the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, mental health is to date the most expensive part of our healthcare system, I believe. And like you said, that there's probably an issue of access for underrepresented uh, populations. And also, as you mentioned, I think that the, the care that you do get lacks, especially for those underrepresented uh, communities, maybe lacks the robustness of having data-driven analyses? Uh, in terms of the expense, I don't think taxpayers uh, who support uh, the medical system get a, a fair shake for their money, you know, considering how much money that's invested on these Medicaid-based services. Uh, there is very little to suggest that there is a return on investment in terms of changes in quality of life uh, for children and adolescents, changes in regards to high school graduation, changes in regards to the suicide rate. In fact, the suicide rate has been going up and up significantly. So there's very limited evidence to suggest that the investments in are, are returning outcomes that are both beneficial to the families and to to the society that invests the money on these programs. So part of that, as I said before, is it's related to the system of care, right? So the system of care, uh, there's uh, not many, you know, highly trained people that want to work with poor people. So right. what end up attracting is newly graduates that are working until they get their license, but takes about three, four years for some of them, because it's hard for them to get a job on a private sector. So, sure. so they work, you know, until they get licensed. And most of them, once they get the license, or so either become administrators or they will leave and join the, the privately funded healthcare. So you have continuously overturn of um, least experienced people coming in and out of the system. Right. It's a high turnaround of uh, yeah. workforce. And in the meantime, uh, the problem that is related to trauma are significantly contribute to the to the population, to the patient population. So, so they tend to be more severe in terms of their problems, uh, have very significant um, functional impairment. When we say functional impairments for this population, for children adolescent with three areas we look at. We look at. One is academic performance. Two has to do with their ability to be able to build a relationship outside of the home. And three is their ability to be able to have a meaningful relationship within their home. So on all those accounts, you know, the high school dropout rate has not bushed, you know, for its worse in some states than others. The suicide rate has gone significantly, about 76% in the last 10 years or so. So whatever metrics that you use to see if mental health is mm -hmm. producing an outcome, right? Improving your quality of life, improving high school graduation, decreasing high-risk behaviors, very little evidence that that there is a return on investment in terms of the money that's investing is producing the outcomes that are necessary. Gotcha. And then you mentioned that this is due to 
trauma that they've experienced? What kind of trauma are we talking about? So trauma in general accounts, you know, about 80% of mental health uh, conditions are related to trauma. It's more so in this case in the communities that, that people from kids from low-income communities. So we do know there is direct and indirect trauma that kids from low-income communities experience. So, so if you live in a house, that's not safe. And if you live in a neighborhood, that's not safe. And then you go to school, that's not safe. The chance that you get developing trauma symptoms are, are very likely, right? So very difficult to diagnose the trauma because it requires someone with a higher, you know, more experience to be able to kind of pinpoint the, not just giving a diagnosis, but knowing uh, how severe it is. Uh, and then it is very difficult to track whether someone is getting better or not, because we don't have the tools or the technologies that are necessary to see whether someone that's going through the treatment is actually getting better or getting worse. So all these things exacerbate um, the issues of trauma. So this is where TQ Intelligence comes in. Can you talk a little bit about what exactly TQ Intelligence predicts and what data plays a role in that solution and how it collects this data? We started from the premise that I just mentioned. One, the system is not likely to change any time in my lifetime. Right, probably. It's not going to attract a whole bunch of highly qualified people to, you know, just run into that system. So what do you do with that, right? So, so our um, conclusion is that technology can start some of the problem. We can have the right technology to be able to support providers, giving them information that they don't easily have or, or will not have to be able to impact outcome. Our solution is called Clarity AI, and we collect a number of different data. So we have a, a phone app that the therapist will collect the data every week or every other week. That includes about a 45 to 90 seconds voice sample. Voice is one of the least uh, intrusive of biomarkers. So rather than taking your blood work and, and trying to discover there is a, a gene that is related to trauma or a facial recognition technology to see if there is any um, features that could indicate trauma, we use voice. So, so voice in this case is similar to what a blood pressure for, uh, for the cardiovascular system. It's a way to be able to uh, objectively gauge does trauma exist, right? If it does exist, how severe is the trauma? Uh, and then to be able to collect it throughout the treatment process to see if a, a $4 Prozac versus a $250 newer <clears throat> prescription, are there any differences between the two of them? Is, a, is therapy three times a week does make a difference versus therapy every other week? We don't really know right now. Okay, so we're flying by all kinds of subjective assumptions and feelings and intuitions, which are fine, but they're not, they're not data. It's, from not, data. it's not scientific. Yeah. So we're developing these biomarkers for trauma and stress that will indicate and help us discern and then to be able to give that data in real time, right? So, so everything that we do is geared towards supporting, we're not trying to substitute providers, we're trying to support providers when it matters the most. When they're in front of their patients, so as they go through that process, we can be able to provide data at their meeting with their patients so they can make data-driven decisions about treatment. So voice is one tool among, among others, but primarily uh, as an objective tool to be able to support providers by giving them objective data. So, so very limited objective data exists in mental health right now. 
So almost all the instruments that we use are subjective in nature yes. because it has to be filled by someone. You're asking mm -hmm. a therapist or you're asking the patient. Uh, so you're at the mercy of people who sometimes don't even know they're not being objective enough in terms of giving you the information that you need. And then you use that information to make very significant decisions about sometimes life and death, right? Yes, absolutely. So, 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 so our way of dealing with that subjectivity is to introduce an objective data to be able to impact treatment and also to measure. There are people who not benefited from treatment at all. They've been in treatment for a year or two. We don't know why that or they don't get any better, right? So we just keep paying for those, you know, for those services. Um, trying different things. Trying different things, but that is not be the so, so. If you have cardiovascular disease, that's not the case. I mean, if if you don't something, if you're not benefit from treatment for extended period of time, your life is compromised, right? So the provider have you know the all the incentives to figure out aggressively using all kind of assessments to you know to help you to find a solution for you if one solution is not working we don't have that option in mental health right now so you're at the mercy of the people who provide you services you are at the mercy of the person who's prescribing you medication um, if you ask them about you know data there's very limited that it exists only 20% of providers right now use what we call measurement-based services. They do some measurements as it relates to outcomes, right? So there is, you know, for, for a disease that are, as you said earlier, that cost a lot of money, yeah, uh, that have uh, very dramatic consequences to people, uh, for us to be willy-nilly about learning whether something, you know, whether patients are getting better or not through treatment is, is highly problematic. If I understand correctly, you're saying based on that you can tell something in terms of the biomarker in the voice, you can tell something about someone, not just by the words that they're saying, but also in how they're saying it. In terms of the trauma that you mentioned, this indicates, I'm assuming it's, it's you know, certain types of ways that they speak and certain, you know, whether anger or, or something in their voices that might indicate that. Yeah. So what's phenomenal about about trauma, it creates havoc in the person's physiology, psychology, emotional and spiritual life. No part of your body is exempt from the impact of trauma. So the biology of trauma, we have a decent understanding that in children and adolescents, the trauma, that experience of trauma, and then repeated over and over again, have a net cardiovascular outcome, which means it impacts the person's cardiovascular system in a way that is measurable. When that happens, um, that we know that it also impacts the person's voice and speech patterns. It's not just someone like having a bad day and, and all this is, this is a more systematic uh, physiological experiences. Because I, I was thinking about that when, when yeah. we talked last time, I came away thinking about it. And I know this is oversimplifying it, but yeah. the way that I was thinking about it, I was like, okay, well, I have a good friend, she's German, and she yeah. just sounds angry by nature. Like, yeah, yeah. It, just, it sounds more matter of factly. And so how would voice technology work to understand that this is the norm. And I thought, okay, well, do you sample non-angry Germans to compare it as a baseline yeah. to what an angry German might sound yeah, like? Absolutely. Um, and I guess what this kind of question goes to ask is in terms of 
the inclusivity and the and the bias in the data how do you because i i would imagine that it's a very also cultural thing where the symptoms of trauma or the way that they are expressed in the biomarkers will change by different cultures and in the way they speak i certainly know that as an israeli we, you know, we'll yell at each other just to say good morning. Um, Thank you, you know. So how how are you able to account for these differences in the data so that it is inclusive of different uh, cultures or different types of patients? You cannot overcome these biases without addressing these two fundamental issues about the people who develop it and the data that are used to develop it. So it's, it's fundamental. We know what our devices are, right? We're trying to address them. Yes. One is, you know, we've built the infrastructure to collect clinical voice samples. The problem we're running into is that we need voice samples for people who does not have mental health issues. <laughs> so, exactly. So, so to address the, yeah, to address the issue you raised earlier, it just, you know, having this great set of data in itself, right? It brings in a problem. Right, you know, it's very difficult right now trying to get uh, data from people who doesn't have mental health. We're not, you know, about children are lesson. COVID has made it difficult. If we go to, let's say, a private school with kids with privileges, you're gonna end up running into all these COVID trauma-related issues yes, that may not be diagnosed, <laughs> but it would make our job, exactly. you know, that much difficult. And that's the thing, you. you, you you can't make an assumption like your negative set, you could be getting voice samples, but it's people that you, that have not been diagnosed with mental health issues. You don't know if they don't have them or they simply have not yet been diagnosed. Exactly, exactly. So so this is something we're grappling right now with our uh, scientific advisory team in, uh, but we know that, that we will not use any algorithm without addressing the biases, right? Yes, so Clarity exactly. AI currently provides interventions based on data that we, on, you know, so these are survey data like the PHQ-9, the SFSS, they've been used for 20, 25 years. We use those data to provide interventions right now. So, so when you, historically, whenever these researchers go into these neighborhoods and collect data, what they do is a one-way relationship. They collect data and they take off. We don't believe in that. If we come to your to these communities and collect data, we're obligated to provide intervention or a solution right now, right? The community cannot wait until our fancy algorithm develops six months to a year. Right. So we have that kind of relationship in terms of collecting the data. And that's why we've been successful collecting the, the data. That, that's why we can scale up very quickly to be able to collect there's very unique, you know, voice samples that we can be able to collect. So that gives us a breathing room. You have a solution that not many have right now, but just the virtue of being mental health. We have a systematic way to collect the data and give them, you know, the phone up and they can be able to see the results immediately when they say submit, we have graphs. So all this stuff right now is provided. All the solution you can think of from a perspective of mental health tracking. Well, as a product, it's there. It's, the exactly. Finger. Exactly. But on so the it's almost end, like the you know like twenty three and me model. So you're yeah. you know it, it you know you get the benefit now. You spit through the bottle, right? You get some you know your ancestors are from here and all that. Uh, but the main product for 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 twenty three and me is on those 
genetics that is the data that has been collected and the yes. potential use case of those data, right? Yes. So, so there is a way to make a living now, all right? There's a way that you can benefit, you know, I, I like reading 23andMe, like with this stuff, like, you know, there's uh, some really good information, but the information that actually is really helpful comes later on when there's data at scale. Aggregated, yes, exactly. And then, and then you can right. be able to use AI to be able to, you know, I, I don't even think they know exactly in what kind of use cases, you know, but there will be this use cases that are different than that what they can be able to provide right now. Even um, where they were able to match and find lost siblings, if you opted exactly. into that. Exactly. Um, yeah, they had a lot of use cases. And, you know, I never did the 23 and me. Like, I, no. I don't need no fancy algorithm no. telling me that I'm 100% Jewish. <laughs> uh, I know that. But it, but it is true that um, in terms of uh, having an immediate, and, and I think that's a great approach, that you have an immediate output and, or outcome that you can provide a service while still collecting and readjusting, iterating and addressing the data issues that you might have. And a couple of things that I, I was thinking as you, as you answered those questions, first of all, every data set's gonna have bias. It's a question of, I think, and I agree with you, the key is to understand what your biases are and, and address them and work yeah. within those bounds. So you understand what questions you're asking and what answers you're getting from it. Every voice sample we get, we know what the diagnosis is. We know the treatment they've been receiving. We know uh, the uh, adverse childhood experience survey score is. So we're you know uh, having access to the clinical information that with the voice sample. Gotcha, so it's okay, so it's very it robust. Yeah, it gives Positive, us some uh, ideas because there is really no um, open source data for us to train our model, right? Mm -hmm. We have to do is we have to do it from the ground up. Right. So when I say the ground up, we have to label the voice samples, right? So, so I label the voice samples using all the clinical information. To address the bias issue, I have two other psychologists, right? Highly trained psychologists will label that voice sample with no information. They don't have the, oh, wow. okay. uh, so they listen to the voice sample. They don't know the age. They don't know the gender. They don't they have none of that. What do they label? So we have we have the form that we label the voices. So so like a matrix. Um, so, so emotional distrust is in some ways is, is a combination of fear, uh, anger, sadness, right? So a combination of that. And then we have another metrics that they can listen to the voice and label the interpersonal, emotional and academic level of functioning. Can mm. you label that by just listening to the voice? Right? How often do they completely disagree with each other? We're about to find out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in psychology, whenever you, when you develop uh, like a survey, what this is called inter-rater reliability. Are there raters from, are there agreements from the, between these raters, right? Okay. So, yeah. so we have we have another psychologist that's going to be analyzing that data for these inter-rater reliabilities. Mine, Dr. Magadhams, Dr. Linz, right? And then and then we're going to have some sort of a, a cutoff score that these three psychologists has to agree at eighty percent or eighty-five percent for this data to be admitted, right? So that's a very painful process to go through, but that, that's a part of 
That's one way that we're trying to address the biases from the get-go. You've kind of touched upon some of the challenges that you're still facing with this technology and this methodology, certainly in terms of data collection. What are some of the challenges that you're still facing? Uh, we're considered high risk by the virtue of who the founder is. We're considered high risk by the virtue of who we chose to, to identify as clients. Yeah. These are, you know, children not less than from low-income communities. And we are high risk by the virtue of the technology that we chose to emphasize, the speech and motion recognition. So it's kind of a trifecta that is um, that we have to deal with uh, as we are kind of moving in the direction of um, uh, to raise money. Uh, it's been nice to have the National Science Foundation and, and Google to be supportive. Uh, but we want more investors to really take a look at the potential for the technology. You know, voice since Alexa in 2017 has really you know, progressed into a, a, a household item, including the number of uh, smart speakers. And I have a couple of them in my house, you know, my kids talk to them as if these are like human beings. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so there exists, you know, a potential for an emotional recognition in, in a, lot of data. a number of different areas that could be helpful in healthcare or other areas. So, so, so we are having these conversations and, but, you know, but we, again, they're, they're a bit worried about this. As a psychologist coming into the tech space, did you see anything that you felt kind of needs calling out? Is there something that you felt in the tech and data industry that should be done differently, um, certainly in terms of diversity and inclusion, but in any other kind of aspect. You're trying, you're trying to get me in trouble. Yes, um, that's, the, that's our goal so, at Who's Your Data. Is to, it's, yeah. I mean, the, I, good I trouble. You know, the amount of, the percentage of these investments going into uh, founders of color and women, it really mm -hmm. atrocious from a perspective, right? So this is not like a, any, none of us are looking for charity. For, from the perspective that there is more than one way to make money. There are areas that we just look at simply what we're doing here, right? We, we, we're looking at 45 million kids that are currently covered by Medicaid, right? 45 million kids. If you ask, you know, what is the level of innovation in that area? It's very limited compared to all these other companies that are targeting employers and, you know, direct consumers and people that can be able to afford. From a numbers perspective, right? So numbers in terms of human beings, numbers in terms of the money, the money is there and the people are there. The opportunity is there. But as soon as you start limiting you know, that opportunity, right? There it is, it's like a missed opportunity in some ways, right? So, so, so I think we need to change the way that we think about diversity, right? When we say diversity, there's a lot of noise right now. There's a lot of companies that yes, are- it's very overloaded. Become more of a marketing rather than it is a commitment. And, you know, I had a encounter with a number of them in the past two, three months. And I usually go and look at their website uh, in terms of- yes you know, who yes. the people in them, who they yes. invested. There is no indication that they're committed, committed to anything other than feeling anxious and right. not wanting to be left alone with these kind of, with these topics. Yes, it can be but very diversity does not mean charity, right? Diversity means opportunity. You know, investors take a look at us as the, you know, the stuff that we bring to the table that not many other people can be able to bring to. You just have to kind of adjust your lenses slightly differently, right? 
um, I'm not a white guy that gets your unconscious excited. You know, this is because when we talk about diversity, we would always assume people making decision, you know, on being rational, right? But a lot of these decisions that impact us is done and made unconsciously, yes. right? Investors tend to find affinity with someone that talks like them and someone that Absolutely. looks like them. That's right. They don't even know that it's taking place when they make a decision about who's gonna go to the next step or not, right? So, so it's important to stop, right? Stop and, and before you go out and trying to like, you know, mix it up with all these diverse, you know, founders and all that, at, at least stop and see what is this kind of unconscious bias have played in your life? You know, whether you're talking to a kid, you know, trying to sell you something, whether you're talking to a, a founder who's trying to uh, pitch you an idea. And, and so until there is a recognition of this kind of unconscious bias, dramatically limiting founders of color to be considered appropriately. We, again, we're not asking for charity. We're not asking for anything special other than the same risk that you're comfortable taking with white founders, just do 80% of that or 70% of that. So, so it's a, you know, it, it is, there's progress, right? At least, you know, there is movement. Um, there is an interest. So we want to kind of take advantage of that and push the, the limit just a little bit further and saying, before you sit down and talk to these founders, right? Find a way to see if any of your buttons, any of some things that some of the buttons are pushed partly because of, you know, there are these beliefs that you don't even know that you have, but they also are significantly impacting your decision-making abilities. Right, I think that's a very important statement. And I uh, agree with you. I think when you look, like you said, you just need to look at a company's website to really see what's going on there. And many times with all of the, in the past year, the climate for diversity and inclusion, you, you have to be very careful that it's not performative and that it's not yeah. virtue signaling. And yeah. you can look, and I think many times when you see in these companies, if you look at their website, you look at their leadership, even though they're talking about diversity, the top echelons is white men. And you kind of go down the ranks and at some point you might see women, a couple of women, and then, but you don't see people of color until down in the bottom ranks. And until there are people of color in the leadership and women of color in the leadership, you're not really walking the walk. You are just talking the talk. There was a recent, like a day event that organized to connect founders of color women. And so one of the companies, nothing except white and most majority male. So what they, this is, you know, so for, for me, it's like, I'm not, you know, this is kind of waste of your time, waste of my time. So, so what they did is they send someone as the least senior person right, <laughs> to this event that, you know, she can barely manage to talk for five minutes uh, because she knows that this is not going to go anywhere by the virtue of our position, you know, we've been in this for quite a while. So, so, so we know when someone is actually decently interested you don't you know again you it's we take the responsibility of kind of making you um engage with the material that we have in the innovation but at least bring yourself to the you know to the table with decent intentions yes and i will add i think that people who are minorities from the cultural baggage 
can read a room when yeah. it comes to the the seriousness with which the people around them take the issue or i'm even saying this you know from as as a as a jewish man reading the sort of undertext of anti-semitism in a room yeah, yeah. and as a gay man reading yeah. the subtext of homophobia in a room absolutely we can absolutely. you know we can read a room and so yeah. if you're gonna if it's performative or if you're like you don't really mean it like we can tell oh yeah i mean this is you know we do this because we need to develop the skill sets i mean it's right. not a choice right no <laughs> I it's, survival. I don't have to spend, it's survival yeah i don't have to this is cognitive energy that i have to spend that Right. My founders on the, on the other side could be completely clueless. Exactly. And still be considered. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No idea the the whole other level that you are thinking of, about. Yeah. Um, and that you have to deal with, and the energy that you have to spend on it, that they're completely clueless about. That's a really really good point. That I think so many times, even as code switching in your work environment, yeah. as again as yeah. a, as a as a uh, LGBT person in the work environment, for example. Absolutely. Absolutely. And certainly as a person of color, and certainly if you're the only one in your in your company or you're in department that you have to uh, normalize your behavior in a way that is is not threatening to anybody. And it's a conscious decision that you're making all the time and that other that people who are not in that minority don't have a clue. Yeah. That you're going through and and by the time you finish the day you know you wonder why you're exhausted you're exhausted <laughs> and also i don't want to hang out with you after work yeah, yeah. i don't keep doing that i want to go home to my friends and be me yes exactly breathe and, and you will, know breathe and breathe exactly and yeah. i will say one other thing that i want to agree with you i dated a psychologist for many years yeah and yeah. um i went to a couple of apa conventions oh wow yeah, psychologists are a very special breed. Yeah, yeah. In a very certain way. And let's just say, I have stories. Yeah, so you can go to an APA conference and hear uh, some research that has been done 25 times over yes. and over again, pointing out the same problem that existed 25 years yes. ago, right? Uh, but very rarely that you're going to run into innovation as it relates to uh, how technology can be able to improve. And the fact that you are bringing that into mental health, I think is amazing and has a lot of potential also to integrate with other techniques and other new tech in the mental health space, as far as, you know, uh, chat bots that are virtual therapists yeah, and being able to, to back that up uh, and help with, with diagnoses. And I think in general that uh, automated healthcare is going to be a big thing in, in the next couple of years, I think. Because like you said, healthcare is so broken that it's going to get, it's get I think it's going to start getting fixed uh, with automation with the big tech companies Absolutely. stepping in. Amazon, Absolutely. Walmart, the ones that are that really are paying a lot of money for their healthcare and have the ability to change it. And everybody should pay attention to Walmart. I always follow the, their data guy. You know, there are things that they can do at scale. Yes. And what they're really focusing on right now is driving down the cost. Yeah. Driving down the cost using their 1 million employees and using all these services that are not, you know, so anytime they can use a physician assistant, they will do. Anytime right. they can use a nursing assistant, they will do at the, instead of the physician. Anytime they can use a master's level therapist rather than a psychologist with a PhD, they will do. So, so they're systematically 
intend to drive down the cost. Telemental housing right. is going to go away. Telemental mm-hmm. housing is here to stay. Um, Absolutely. And develop more. And I think Amazon is another example. And the reason I say Amazon is because they have a history of taking the things that have been, uh, you know, a big investment for them or an expenditure and turning them into profit centers. So if it was fulfillment that they spent a lot of money on, boom, they turned it into a profit center. And I think that the healthcare that they have to pay for their employees, that is such a big money sink for them, will eventually cause them to do their own thing for healthcare. and, And they have the clout and the power and the technology to do it. So what are you excited for in 2021? What is coming up that is exciting for you and TQ Intelligence or in the mental health space yeah. in general? So, so for mental health, I mean, I think, you know, we have, I think, finally come out of being kind of an exotic uh, um, in terms of innovation. And so, so investors have lost their fear as it relates to investing in, in um in mental health innovation, which is, is a good news. The bad news is still everybody's chasing the same thing again. So, so it's a I don't know how many telemental health providers we're gonna have or we need to have. And so we do hope now that telemental health 2.0 would include quality, not just access, but quality and paying for quality rather than paying for services. Uh, so, so hopefully the kind of the value-based uh, payment methods um, uh, will start to come to fruition, uh, which potentially could be helpful to people from low-income communities. So if people are uh, interested in learning more about TQ Intelligence or about your work, where can they find you? That's uh, tqintelligence.com. That's our website. Uh, We'll have all the links in terms of uh, accessing our net capital page that is currently under development. They can contact me directly. It's Y, my last name, A-L-E-M-U. Uh, at tqintelligence.com. Uh, I'm also on um, on LinkedIn. Um, most of them not in any other social media. You know, we're we're um, we're always looking for strategic partnerships, not just people who are willing to fund what we do, but also uh, bring in um, level of uh, skills that we don't currently have. So um, talk to um, any potential collaborators. Wonderful, Dr. Leeming. Thank you so much for this very very fascinating conversation, and. Lots of luck with this really amazing initiative. Thank you so much, Vlad. This has been wonderful. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to who'syourdatanow at gmail.com. That's who'syourdatanow, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data? <laughs>